Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Being Brown and Bold podcast. I'm your host, Jess Thomas. We are so glad you're joining us for all our amazing conversations about stepping out of our comfort zone, being bold, and taking chances. Today, I am chatting with Renji Bajoy. He is the founder of Immersed, a tech star startup, startup partnered with Facebook, HTC, and Microsoft to build VR offices, which has raised $12 million to date. Renji is part of 2021's Forbes 30 Under 30, receives a master's degree from Georgia Tech, and went to seminary, and was the lead software architect at greatbigstory.com. And he also has an amazing presence on social media. I definitely recommend following him because that's what I'm doing. And it's been such an encouragement for me, especially being from a Brown background and seeing Renji representing for us. So Renji, it is so great to have you here on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So to get started, tell us about your name, how you pronounce it, what it means. Renji, uh, that's how you say it. it's like Benji with an R. People have told me that they've heard of Japanese names or Filipino names that are the same. I think about like other Malayali families and everybody, every kid starts with the same letter or they rhyme. I don't know if you have uh, that in your family. Uh, my sisters, uh, they, they do have that kind of the last part of their name. Like there's a L-Y-N at the end of their names. But um, yeah, for me, my name doesn't rhyme with anyone's name. It's just, yeah. I guess my parents like the name. So me and my brother both start with the J. All three of my kids start with the J. Me and the middle sister have the same first initial, but uh, it sounds nothing alike. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What does it mean to be you? Yeah, so my parents moved from India to New York. The hard, hard part was their degrees did not translate to like an American degree. And so their degrees didn't really count for anything. And so they had to kind of just do the stereotypical jobs, things like, you know, taxi, uh, taxi cab driver, convenience stores, things like that. And so my mom ended up uh, becoming a nurse. So she had to like redo her degree here in the U.S. I think because a lot of um, Indian families try to, they have their own version of keeping up with the Joneses in a sense where they just kind of like want to show everyone else that they're thriving in this sort of uh, land of opportunity. And my parents weren't making a lot of money like, like some other families or um, everyone was trying to figure out their way to get ahead. But if you didn't inherit millions of dollars from your, you know, your ancestors, your, your, your parents or their parents, and you were starting from scratch, my parents were trying to figure out their own version of that American dream, right? Living in New York, definitely lived in a rough area just because we couldn't afford much. Um, and by the time I was eight, I think it just got too rough to the point where my parents were like, all right, we just got to get out of here because this is just not a very safe environment to raise kids. They heard about a bunch of other families moving to the suburbs of Georgia because apparently the government was helping subsidize a lot of cost of people moving out there. And uh, you'd get a five-bedroom home for half the cost of a house in New York that would have been half the size of New York. And, uh, you know, more land, the kids could go outside and play in the cul-de-sac, not worry about drive-by shootings and things like that. So uh, moved to Atlanta when I was eight and kind of learned how to do that in uh, a much, much, a much, much more white context than we were in before. In New York, at least it was multicultural, but in Atlanta, we were some of the few brown people and just had to learn how to adapt, right? And that's the part that was definitely rough because um, the very next year after we moved to Atlanta, 9-11 uh, happened, especially if you're a bearded brown guy. It's just something that would, you know, kind of just negatively affect you for the rest of your, of your life. And you have to kind of figure out how to uh, navigate life. The hard part is, uh, you know, as soon as we step into an airport, white and black unite against the brown person. And so uh, it's definitely a different type of um, experience. And it's something that just makes it very uh, difficult to figure out, okay, well, in what context am I welcome? In what context can I get ahead? And so that's why 
you'll probably see me more uh, in a technological office workspace where people assume I know what I'm talking about because I'm just an Indian guy in tech. How has this cultural background informed your life and your work? When I went to undergrad, I actually was pre-med, even though I now work in the tech world. Um, I was pre-med because my parents, they wanted me to be a doctor, as a lot of Indian parents want their kids to be. But I knew that my passions weren't really there. And so I you know, applied to med schools. I got into med schools. But when it was time to actually commit to one, I just I knew that I loved coding way more than I loved, you know, waking up in the morning and like, you know, going to, um, you know, a hospital floor and doing rounds and things like that. Like I shadowed and stuff. And I, that's how I knew this is not something I would want to wake up the rest of my life doing. Um, and I also kind of did some internships as a coder and I loved it. And so I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to med school just for my parents, I know I'm not doing it for myself. So I ended up throwing all those acceptance letters in the trash and my parents are super upset with me. But I mean, now they're happy because they've seen me be a lot more successful in the tech world, but their fear was I would just, I wouldn't stand out. Their fear was that um, I would be just like every other kid who's making 60K as a uh, coder, as opposed to, you know, doctors can make 300 to 800K, depending on what they do. What I also realized was not only did I love coding, but um, God had sort of wired my brain to be pretty good at it. Because um, I know that, you know, people are passionate about a lot of things, right? I'm also passionate about basketball or gaming or whatever, but you know, I'm not gonna be LeBron James. Right. And so, uh, and I also am not going to devote 40, 50, 60 hours a week uh, of my life towards gaming to become a pro gamer anymore. Like I just, uh, that's not something that I want to do. So what I realized was I need to kind of do something that not only am I passionate about and I enjoy, but also something that, um, I'm really, really good at. And so the coding was that thing. Uh, and then on top of that, in the tech world, people just gave me the benefit of the doubt, assuming I know what I was talking about because I'm Brown. Right. And so they're like, you know, a lot of, uh, Asian slash uh, brown people in tech are pretty strong in building technology. And so they oftentimes just kind of go with your go with the flow with whatever you say. And so I started noticing um, in my different work contexts when I worked at larger companies as a coder that people would just take my word for it. Whenever there have been women in the tech world who um, have something that they want to say, I've definitely seen people condescend that and a lot of people be more combative, which is not fair for them. And so I will say I definitely did have an advantage as a male um, in the tech world. I just started gravitating towards that because that was a world that was a world where I was really accepted. I've had to kind of figure out where um, I fit in society, and I know that there is a unique context here and there in the U.S. where that's the case with people who look different. Um, but that being said, uh, one thing that I do really miss from being more involved with uh, the Indian Church growing up was how much of a family environment everything did feel like. Though there were definitely, as I grew up, definitely. Um, uh, conflicts in my mind as, as far as the exclusivity of those communities where they wouldn't allow other people who didn't look like them into those communities. Um, there was a little sense of, you know, I, I do miss some of that sort of village family, broader family type vibe where you can just go to a random uncle or auntie, ask them for candy and they'll just give it to you, right? <laughs> as a little kid, so. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that is really difficult to feel like you are being singled out just because of the way you look. And it's not just feeling, it's literally that is what's happening to you. It's happened to me. <laughs> you know, so my last name is Thomas. One time I got stopped at the airport, like, no, what's your real name? I'm like, the one on the oh, passport. Wow. And it and I was like, really? <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. So okay. They expect well, you like some sort of like long, confusing name or something. Right, right. I'm like, let me tell you, two thousand years ago, what had happened was yeah. One of the disciples, I don't know if you know that there was a guy named Jesus and he had 12 followers. One of those guys came to India and a lot of our yeah. names <laughs> are similar. So I gave him the whole history lesson. And oh, that's wow. why this is my name. <laughs> wow. Can you help me rebook my flight now? <laughs> oh, wow. 
don't mess with me. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so when you were little, is is this the life that you imagined for yourself, or or what did you imagine your life would look like? I knew that I really loved uh, gaming. I loved playing sports and things like that. And, you know, it might sound typical, but for me, I was pretty obsessive. Um, like when I used to play video games, uh, mainly in middle school and early high school, I wouldn't just play here and there. I would play like 10 hours a day, every day. And, um, it got to the point where, um, I essentially was a professional gamer. So that's something that, uh, I did take seriously as a kid, but, um, yeah, as I was so focused on those things, I wouldn't really think about the future that much, um, until like, like even to the point where, um, in high school, I had a 2.6 GPA because I just cared about friends and hanging out and you know, working out and sports and whatever. I didn't think about, oh, like in, in six months, I have to be applying to colleges and I need good grades for that. I wouldn't even think about that. So, uh, but then, you know, fast forward to today, I'm so future focused that it prevents me from being so like focused enough on the present. And so, you know, <laughs> I guess I've just swung so uh, far the opposite end of the, the, the pendulum that um, I know I need to be a more sort of centered person. I actually went to Georgia State my first year to almost like prove that I wasn't bad at school. Um, I was just lazy in high school. So I graduated high school with a 2.6 GPA. So it was not good. If I had a 3.0, I would at least would have had a scholarship to pay for that first year of college. But because I had less than a 3.0, I had to pay out of pocket for that first year of college. And Georgia State was the only school that even accepted me. So everyone else, just all rejections. Um, but when I went to Georgia State, you know, I was 17 years old, $7,000 in debt, and I'd never seen $7,000 in my life. So I was like, wait, how am I starting at, you know, negative 7,000? So that, like, really uh, was a um, figurative punch in the face to, like, wake up. And I immediately started applying myself because, uh, you know, the 7,000 wasn't coming out of my parents' pocket, it was coming out of mine. Uh, and I, I appreciate them for doing that, for not just absorbing the consequences for me, but making me face those consequences. Part of it was by necessity, <laughs> they, they couldn't afford it. But also part of it was, I think, you know, some parents would maybe even like sell cars in order to pay for stuff. And like, my parents are like, uh, maybe you can figure this out. And so uh, I started working full time, and I was paying for school, I was working at Office Depot as a laptop salesperson, um, also while going to undergrad at Georgia State. And uh, I started applying myself, and I was like, if I'm paying for these classes, I'm going to get a really good grade. Uh, and I, I ended up getting, uh, at Georgia State, they had A pluses. So I ended up getting A pluses in all my classes. So I graduated after, sorry, not graduate, but I, I ended that first year uh, at Georgia State with a 4.3 GPA. And then that's when I was able to transfer to Emory to finish out the rest of undergrad. And then I went to Georgia Tech for grad school because I was pre-med in undergrad. I felt like I did myself a disservice because I wasn't focused on computer science like I really wanted to. And so I just did uh, computer science master's at Georgia Tech. Wow. So as you're even telling this story, I'm thinking about the boldness of your parents. One, coming to America, expecting this type of life, which wasn't what they had planned, and then because of their careers, having to redo education, then relocating to Georgia. You know, that in itself is another bold move. And I think it is very bold when immigrant parents don't pay for their kids' school. Like, I yeah. rarely hear that. So for your parents to... Yeah, it's by necessity, but like you're saying, some parents would be like, no, I have to sacrifice everything because they that's why we came to this country. I do this for my kids. So even that just makes me like, wow, your parents like were bold and like kudos to yeah. them for letting you live your life. Yeah, I think part of it also was because I had two older sisters who they did absorb more of the consequences there, but then they also saw that the ROI kind of wasn't uh, that worth it, meaning they paid for a lot of their schooling, but 
Um, in the end, my sisters ended up like shifting careers anyway. And they're like, why do we pay all this money if it's not going to result in the expected outcome? Uh, and then also at the same time, my parents always uh, would say things like, oh, you know, you're, you're our only son. You're going to make it. You're going to figure it out. All of that. Uh, I will say that is something that they really did. Um, that, that's something that they really did. Uh, that, something that they did that really impacted me positively was how much they believed in me, it, it, like almost irrationally. Um, it was weird, but it's almost like as if like, if Renji didn't figure it out, we're all going to die, <laughs> that sort of thing. And they would say that, but that's kind of the vibes I got of like, if I don't figure this thing out, my family is not going to like, we're going to struggle forever or, you know, uh -huh. my, we're going to be homeless or we're going to, so I'm not going to let myself be a burden to my family. Like, I understand that like, just in the, the way America is wired, uh, unfortunately, it's not as equal between male and female in the US, even to, as, as, as much as there's a social push towards that, it's still not the case. There's still sort of underlying advantages that a lot of guys do get. And I saw a lot of the disadvantages my sisters got. And I was like, all right, well, if a lot of these things are working against them and I have things that are working in my favor, then I better push forward and, and make it worth it. And so um, I really did. That's why, that's why it was hard to explain to my parents why I thought it was actually better for me to say no to med school and actually better for me to say yes to uh, kind of the coding world because they didn't really know about guys like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. Um, they just know, oh, doctors are like the highest status in, in society. And that's the highest pay you can get from any sort of paycheck. And I was like, no, but there's this another, this other world you're not as exposed to. And when they think um, technology, they think, you know, customer support IT, they don't think the people who built these things. And so um, for me, like I really did want to, and I still do want to kind of um, do what I can to take care of my family, if that makes sense, because we, we weren't as successful growing up and not that that's the most important thing in life, but, um, I, and I know that money doesn't solve all these problems, but it does solve your money problem. Yeah. I just want my parents to be comfortable for the next, hopefully maybe, maybe 10, 15, 20 more years that they have here on this earth. It sounds like it's been a, a roller coaster, um, you know, honoring your parents from what they expected of you, but then what they expected of their own lives. Do you feel that struggle with honoring them even today as you're pursuing your dreams? Uh, not anymore. And the hard part is um, when you end up being successful, if you end up being successful in your career, then your parents kind of don't really care what you do for a living as long as, long as there's something they can brag about. <laughs> so that's kind of the sad reality of the situation. Like, I, So by the time I was 23, I graduated when I was 21. By the time I was 23, I was a lead software architect. So you know, by God's grace, I was making kind of the most you could make as a software engineer. Usually takes people about 10, maybe more like 15 years to get that level in their career. And again, as I said earlier, like by God's grace, my brain was just wired for that in a way I didn't realize. And so I kind of climbed the ranks within about two years out of undergrad. And uh, if I continued just as sort of that software architect type of route, uh, my parents would have been okay with it, but it's not something they would brag about. And thus there was always gonna, there, there would always be sort of this um, thing in the back of their head where they're like, man, I wish my son was a doctor instead. Um, but, you know, just coincidentally, because of the fact that I decided to start, uh, you know, build our own company um, and it does a lot better than what I would just be doing if I was just a coder at someone else's company, uh, because you're successful in your career, um, people kind of look at you as sort of like a figure in that space. Uh, likewise with me, like a lot of, um, I guess a lot of my parents' peers um, and their kids look at me as sort of a role model for their kids um, because they want a lot of their kids to sort of aspire to that sort of stuff. And it's funny because uh, I'm very, 
I kind of don't care about that. I guess what I mean by that is I have other friends who um, have done a great job in their career and they're sort of um, a role model in their field. And uh, some of them like being famous. Some of them like kind of the attention and all of that. And so it's funny to see that. Um, and also it's funny to see when someone doesn't recognize them, how they deal with that. For me, I'm just used to just not being recognized, but in contexts where, uh, like for example, um, uh, my wife and I went to Dallas to go see our uh, new nephew who was just born uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, my mom asked if me and my wife can come to one of the prayer meetings and stuff. And it was a little bit weird because everyone was staring. And I just didn't really, I, I keep forgetting that, especially in the Malayali community, a lot of people recognize me. Um, because I'm generally here in Austin, Texas, I'm not in very many Malayali contexts at all, like ever. Um, but online, in Malayali contexts, I guess I'm somewhat uh, uh, a familiar face. Like another example, and so when I was at that prayer meeting, just everyone constantly staring at it afterwards, people just wanted to like connect with me and like take photos and things like that and just like send it to other people. It was really wow, weird. Wow, they wanted to yeah. do selfies with you? <laughs> yeah, like I, here's, here's how bad it's gotten before. Like this sounds so bad, but I'm just telling you how it is. Uh, so at my grandmother's funeral, uh, I was in New York and <laughs> it's so bad that even at the funeral, people had no regard for the fact that we were at my grandmother's funeral and they're still like wanting to take selfies and send it to their friends and stuff. And I'm like, dude, this is my grandmother's funeral, dude. And like, I wasn't laughing. I was just like, very, just like, I, I didn't like push it off. I was like, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's fine. And like, it's just such a weird thing whenever I'm in, like, I, I may be in some sort of like, like specifically Malayali context, maybe two or three times a year, if that, maybe once or twice a year. And because it's so infrequent, I forget how to even like normally respond. Cause I'll do a big keynote speeches elsewhere, but like in, in multicultural contexts, but those people already don't know me. Right. So for example, uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I was on a, um, a panel on stage with Lecrae, uh, the, the CEO of Intel and some other, you know, uh, uh, Nona Jones, who she's like kind of the head of you version on the marketing side, and then some other CEOs and stuff. And uh, no one knew me. And so for me, it's just very easy just to be myself because no one knows me anyway. I'm just gonna be myself. But when I'm in context where <laughs> people like overly recognize my face, I'm just not used to that. Uh, and, 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 and so I don't really know how to appropriately respond to that. Whereas guys like Lecrae or Tim Tebow, like, or, or even, for, even for example, I've, I've probably gotten the most deep with Andy Minio on this particular side of things. I can't even imagine. I mean, the funeral stories. I'm like, I yeah, think, that's and crazy. I, yeah, that people don't understand, you know, how to give privacy and respect or like understand the context of things. Yeah. So, all right. Well, talking about Indian culture, well, a central focus in the life of a brown person is marriage. And I know, like, those of us who grew up here, my circle, we were told you shouldn't be dating, finish all your education, then get a job, then maybe you think about getting married, and then maybe you can choose your spouse. We don't know, but you know, dating is for after you get married, then you date your spouse. Does does any of this echo with your story and the way you're raised? Well, what's funny is, and then on the flip side of that, if you end up being like 30 years old and you're not married yet your parents think something's wrong with you. It's like, well, you told me not to talk to anyone right. of the opposite right. gender for the first 30 years of my life. And now you're right. upset with me. Anyway, uh, for me, um, I think in general in high school, I was a pretty rebellious kid. So I only became a believer when I was 19. Um, and so as a kid, I was generally, I mean, unregenerate kid. Uh, people don't realize this, but it was actually a pretty uh, big problem child. Like I would 
get into fights and all that. And honestly, I hit a lot of my fights from my parents. Like I figure out ways to just like not get in trouble as much. But um, in high school, again, to fight, it was like a really, really bad thing. Um, and a lot of it was a lot of pent up anger for, you know, I guess a decade almost of just a lot of racism and all of that in the suburbs of Georgia. But um, yeah, so when I became a believer when I was 19, um, my convictions around dating and marriage and all of that became very, very different from kind of what my parents desires for uh, me as a Malayali Indian kid uh, growing up, right? So for them, they wanted me to do the typical thing of marry, marry a Malayali Pentecostal specifically um, uh, person. And that didn't end up happening. Um, I had dated uh, a couple of different people, but uh, I just didn't really, um, at the end of it, I actually got to the point where I wanted to stay single the rest of my life because as a believer, I actually at the time hadn't met anyone who um, I felt like would would enhance the mission that I'm on. I actually felt the most impactful as a believer being single. And I understood what uh, Paul was saying in, um, was it 1 Corinthians 7 where he says it's better not to marry or is it Romans 7? I mixed those two up. Um, but he ultimately like because he's on mission he doesn't have uh, i guess family as i don't know collateral or whatever just like a a, a weak point I, you'll see that in superhero stories where they don't even like target the superhero they target the superhero's loved ones and i guess whatever so i guess like for me being on mission um i just i was like all right well if this is gonna kind of get in the way of that then i think i should just stay single and so there's actually like sort of maybe about a year there where um i was i think 23 and i was just single and just focused and um, there were different, uh, women who, uh, at the church would like talk to the pastor and be like, Hey, like, why is Renji saying that he wants to be single, blah, blah. And like pastors would sit down with me and be like, Hey, are you sure you want to do this? And all that. And I'm like, yo, the advice is a bad thing. Right. And, and maybe these they, are, met... are these aunties that are saying that or are these like, no, I was going to, <laughs> no, no, no. I was, uh, I was actually at the time going to a multicultural church. Um, okay. and so when I became a believer, I didn't, I, I didn't stay in the Malayali church for, uh, too long. I stayed after I became a believer. I, was, I stayed in the Malayali church for maybe a year and a half because I was trying to help out. Um, but I think I was just maybe a little too uh, radical for them to want me to stay around. And so it became very clear that I wasn't really welcome after about a year and a half. Um, just because a lot of the stuff that you see preached in scripture is very different from what you see in a lot of Indian cultural churches. Um, and so what ended up happening was after about a year and a half of being in the Indian church, it was just very clear I wasn't welcome there anymore. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll check out other churches. And so uh, at the time I was going to um, a just sort of a multicultural church. Um, but yeah, this was just random people from college and stuff, all different sort of races and backgrounds who would uh, talk to our pastors. Our pastors at that church were black. Um, <clears throat> there was a church in Atlanta called Blueprint Church. Uh, actually, Lecrae and some of those guys actually helped plant that church before I got there. Um, anyway, so, uh, but when uh, my wife ended up well, my now wife uh, ended up moving from Florida to Atlanta for a job. It was just coincidence that uh, the community group that she was going to was the community group that um, I was going to. And um, I had noticed her from afar and like, uh, and by the way, she's not Malayali. And so, um, you know, in my head, I was like, well, yeah, I'm probably gonna stay single anyway. So I don't have to worry about, you know, bringing anyone to my parents. And so, um, but like, I noticed that she was the type of person who was intentional with other women and like a person who was already on mission on her own too. And you know, come to find out she was actually in a very sort of similar um, lane in life where she was like, I think I'm just gonna stay single and stay focused on my mission until the Lord calls me otherwise. Um, and actually like just being kind of around each other, uh, she ended up uh, saying, like I said, something like, it's really cool to have another um, uh, you know, solid sister, like in our community group, something like that, just cause she was like really serving and being really reliable for a lot of other people. And, uh, and then she said, she was like kind of joking, but kind of not saying, uh, yeah, but I want to be like an intentionally pursued solid sister. And so I was like, 
yeah, I'm just trying to stay focused. So no. And so I actually ended up rejecting her in that first oh, man. Uh, conversation. Yeah. But she took it very well. And I was like, dang, she's too mature. <laughs> I was like, all right, if there's anyone who's ever, ever going to enhance the mission that I'm on, it would probably be a woman like her. And mm -hmm. so that's where within the matter of days, I was like, really just like my, my, my focus or my thoughts and my feelings had really started turning towards her in a way that just never did for anyone else. And so um, I had more sort of clarifying conversations with her and it just turns out that we were literally just on the same page about everything. So now we've been married seven years, which is crazy how long it's been. Um, yeah. And best decision, best decision of my life. Has there been many challenges because it's a cross-cultural marriage? Um, at first, like before my parents met her, yes. Cause it was just sort of this uh, idea that like Renji is not marrying a Malayali person. And then when they met her, because she's a solid believer who's very loving to people and very caring, their hearts melted. And, and ever since then, ever since the first day they met her, they love her almost more than they love me. <laughs> like they're, they're very close with her. They trust her. Um, you know, her and my parents get along extremely well. And so, you know, they, they awesome. treat her as, as their own biological child now. So. Which speaks volumes about her character and, yeah. um, and probably even just her confidence in her own identity of who she is. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you've had lots of different jobs since your high school years, you know, going from having a solid job and then starting your own company, which was a rocky road. How do you make sure that you're taking care of yourself, your marriage, your friendships? Because um, I'm sure people listening are trying to live a meaningful life and do meaningful work, but it's a lot to do. And I know you all, especially because it's a startup, you are working a lot of hours to make it work. And things keep changing yeah. all the time. I've seen you post things. This is a secret. And you're not actually showing us anything, but you're showing us something. <laughs> but obviously, big things are happening. That requires a lot of hours. How are you having, yeah. I don't even know if balance is the word, a rhythm. I don't know. How, yeah. Tell us all the secrets. Naturally, it sounds weird and, and probably not very healthy, but like naturally, like me and my mom both are wired this way. We only usually sleep on average about four and a half to five hours a night, which I know is not good. But um, the thing is, if you know, for me, if I sleep eight or nine hours, like I feel like how the regular person feels when they sleep 12 to 14 hours, you just feel groggy and just so slothful. For me, I almost have to maintain my sleep, meaning I have to like kind of cut off my sleep by the time I hit six hours. Like if I sleep, sleep more than that, then I just feel just like, like just horrible. And so um, for me, I naturally wake up after about five hours of sleep. Whereas my wow. wife, she sleeps, yeah, my wife, similar, but polar opposite. She naturally sleeps about 10 hours. And so that gives me an extra like 35 hours a week that, you know, she's not awake and I'm just working and stuff like that. But, and we also hire the same way, whereas people, every single person in this company is obsessed with our, it's so cool just to kind of see them in their own context with their own, own family and friends talking about how much they love and use the, the product and talk to our users and all of that. It's such a cool um, thing. Um, also, you know, my wife, she works halftime at the Starbucks. She used to be an auditor, an auditor at uh, Ernst & Young. And so she's really, really good at doing back office stuff, which I hate doing that stuff. Like, you know, HR benefits, like, you know, payroll, stuff like that. It's so boring to me, but she loves that stuff. Um, so we get to see each other every day at work, which is awesome. I do cut out a lot of things that are time wasters though. Meaning like, if I, like, for example, I'm, I don't play as much video games as a lot of other guys, probably. I, wa I, I watch just enough TV to keep myself uh, maintained. Meaning like, the job compresses you so much. Sometimes you just need to watch an episode of The Office or something to decompress. But I'll make sure just to watch one as opposed to watching like 10 episodes straight. And so it's just enough to help me decompress and then keep going. Um, so I think it is a lot of discipline. They already know I have weird sleeping patterns. And so it's just something that you have to have the right community around you too who uh, knows how to operate with that. And so the hard part is 
a lot of my high school friends are probably not the same friends that I have today. And I'm still, you know, well acquainted with these people, but it's not like I'm spending all day, every day with these people. The people who I spend the most time around are those who probably are living pretty similar lifestyles. Yeah. I've seen how you posted the, the early morning basketball. I'm like, wow, <laughs> yeah. that's such a great way to get your workout in and do community. Yeah. I feel like maybe at some point you had like younger guys there. So it's almost even like a mentoring yeah. type of thing as well. So yeah. I feel like most of the people are young twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're, you're now 30 or over 30 now, right? 31. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting old now. So that's I why know. you're sleeping in. <laughs> like now you're shifting into needing the whole six hours of sleep. Also, when it comes to sleep, I'm already feeling that breakdown. I already feel like I'm starting to naturally get more sleep than I used to, but you know, I'm probably hitting more like six hours these days now. So yeah. which is good. Which is good. That's a healthy thing. You you don't want your yeah. cortisol levels to be too high. So for sure, yeah. Go go with that flow. You know, as you've encountered in this field, people of all different faiths, and like you were saying, Indians have this reputation of being encoding IT and all that. So they're coming from different backgrounds, especially like people who are listening that are of different religions. How are ways that you live out your faith in a way that honors other people while staying true to your calling? Being myself is important. I don't allow other people's faiths to dictate who I am or how that how I act, if that makes sense. So I'm just real. And also, by the way, like on my team at Immersed, there's about uh, six of us who are believers and about 20 something of us who are not believers. But all the unbelievers on my team love the, the believers on my team. And so like um, a real team where yeah, team doesn't mean you're all the same team means that you're unified. Exactly. Yeah. And so the thing is like, we all love each other, respect each other. We don't get into uh, theological or religious debates because at the end of the day, like we're not a Christian company. Um, we just have, I'm a Christian and there are Christians at Immerse, but we're not a Christian. We're not Chick-fil-A. Right. And so um, for us, like number one, yeah, we're just real about who we are. And so I don't hide it um, so that whenever someone joins the company, it's not like they find out. And if they're anti-Christian, they explode or something people are okay with the fact that I'm a believer because at the end of the day, just the way I naturally talk, it comes out where I'll say things like by God's grace, or, you know, if the Lord wills, or, uh, you know, I'm about to have this meeting, please pray for me, that sort of thing. I just naturally talk that way. And if people are not okay with that, they probably shouldn't be led by a CEO who is that way. I am myself. And these people are sons and daughters of peace who are open to that. who are okay with that. Uh, and then number two, when it comes to religion in general, at least my um, perspective is, I don't know, I don't see it as like a hobby. I don't like just being straightforward, whether or not, you know, whoever's listening is a Christian or not. Me being a Christian, it's not like something I was born with. It's not a genetic thing. It's not something I inherited. It's, it is something that God opened up my eye. It's a very real thing. It's, it's not just like a thing that's for fun, if that makes sense. It's an experience that you're living yeah. out because it's not a religious organization that you're ascribed to yeah and it's not tradition like it's it's something that i can't choose to whether or not i really live it out because if the holy spirit really does live in me then i'm just doing what i feel in me if that makes sense and so i guess what i mean by that is um there are other people at my company who they do follow a certain religion just because their parents did it and for them it's more tradition than it is um some sort of like life calling they know who they are if they listen to this podcast um and they also can't deny that. <laughs> we, we've, we've, I've already talked with them about this. They've talked about it with me where they're like, yeah, I just do it because my parents do it, but I don't really like feel anything. Whereas for me, it's, it's who I am, if that makes sense. And so um, for the people on my team, yeah, they are 
uh, the type of people who are okay with that. And they would actually prefer that because they know it's the authentic, true self of who I am. And I think that what makes it uh, even more desirable for them to want that version of me is the fact that they've been exposed to it and they see like what, what I mean by that. And if they had a different type of Renji, that's just not the Renji that they would want because it would just be a fake Renji. It just wouldn't be who I am. What I've noticed in the past couple of years too is I feel like, I don't know if it's a post-COVID thing or what, but I feel like people are talking about spirituality more than I've ever heard before, whether it's they follow a specific religion and they talk about how they're celebrating those holidays or what it means to them, or they're just talking about I'm a spiritual person and I'm manifesting things or I'm having, you know, like feelings, you know, but in general, I feel like talking about spirituality is more accepted now. It's safer now to talk about spirituality, maybe mm -hmm. because there's more tolerance because people are like, oh yeah, like you're the best <laughs> and I do that. I, I, I almost wonder if it's almost history repeating itself or maybe not repeating itself, but at least like rhyming with previous seasons of history where um, there are seasons of people not feeling like they can talk about it. And then seasons where people are like, yeah, but that's not real. And then they start swinging back and then they kind of overdo it. And they feel like, oh, that's too much. And they kind of goes back. And so it's just kind of this like whatever weird sort of wave or cycle, right. but this past sort of season of people um, being over like overly PC and saying, oh, that you're not, you're, that's, it's too exclusive. You can't talk about that. But then it's like, wait, but this is what I believe. It's like, oh, wait, right. We got to be inclusive. All right. Then we'll include that again. And it's just kind of this weird back and forth. Um, and that's why for me, like irrespective of what culture decides at the, that season of time, I just come to find out that if I be, if, if, if I decide to be my true authentic self, then uh, people in general prefer that. And I think at the end of the day, because I say it out of love rather than head knowledge, um, people don't, they usually don't get rubbed the wrong way. They usually have some level of empathy or compassion or um, affinity towards it. So uh, you're active on social media, and often when people are on social media, they see the highlights reel of our lives, right? Um, but the reality is we all have our challenges and our obstacles. What is something that you're currently working on to grow and change? One thing that you and I talked about was smiling more when in public, because people think I'm angry when I'm just straight-faced, but um, that's more of a kind of joke thing. I, I'm not something that I, I don't think it's like as deep a conviction just yet. Um, I think it's one of my convictions, but I think kind of the, probably the more pressing things in my mind is things are really going to sort of a next level scale more than I've ever been exposed to before. And I'm having to scale in character alongside this company, meaning, I don't know, like I've never built a company before. And the fact that, uh, that a lot of people around me are uh, in their forties, fifties, some in their sixties. And like, uh, we're having to hire sort of a more mature C-suite and all of that around me. It's it's something where I realized that I'm going to have to continue uh, being more and more above reproach in the way that I'm handling situations. Like I'm having, there's like a war in my head where I'm just like having to fight patience and things like that. And people, you know, they probably don't see it nearly as much externally because it's in my head. But your face looks also, the same regardless. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm straight faced and angry all the time anyway. So there's that. But then also there's, uh, <laughs> I think, even just the idea of me not having to have that war as much in my head because I'm, I'm slower to anger or I'm slower to be impatient or I'm, I'm more patient um, naturally or intrinsically. Right. And so, so essentially just like kind of growing in patience and understanding. Cause I think that I always want things to work a certain way. And I'm just like, you know, why doesn't it just work? But, you know, not, not realizing that humans are messy, nothing is black and white, everything, everything's a lot more grayish and, and not because it's intrinsically black and white versus gray, but rather I am a human and I have limitations and I can't see everything the way that God can see it. And so 
because of that, things are going to look more confusing than they re- than they really should be. But it's also because I'm not God, and I don't know the perfect way to operate. And so, neither do the people around me. And so, just knowing that, since that is the case, just being more patient, long suffering, caring, empathetic, all of that. Um, I think sort of in this next uh, season of our company, knowing that there's others around me who are also going to be growing in that process. So you want to be a little bit more patient. Patient is probably the biggest word. Yeah. 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 That's always a good thing. Yeah. Where do you see yourself and your company 10 years from now? I don't know. Like we truly do believe that we're building the next version of the internet. I know it sounds kind of grandiose or massive or whatever. And it might just sound like a kid dreaming today, but um, we really do like, as of right now, we just have the most used app in AR VR history. There's just no other AR VR app that people are using 40 to 50 hours a week, every week. Uh, Immerse is the only app that does that period. And so all these tech giants who are pouring dozens of billions of dollars into AR VR, we're creating all these different headsets. Not only are they trying to buy us, they're trying to figure out the secret sauce, trying to figure out how to get that type of usage. Um, and they want to bring that in-house at their companies. But for us, we want to be the next Facebook or Apple or whatever, rather than just sort of joining one of those. The hope is that Immerse can be another tech giant, but a tech giant run by uh, a believer, if that makes sense. Um, because, you know, candidly, if Facebook was run by a believer or if Apple was run by a believer or whatever, I think our world would look very different. Um, I think that it would be more acceptable to be a Christian in our world. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't really uh, care whether or not the Lord makes this thing successful because he can have his own way and I trust whatever his goals are. But um, I think that'd be pretty fun. It'd be difficult, but I think it'd be fun to live in a world where that was the case. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's it's interesting to envision, you know, because when you were 21, did you think this would be your life today? No, I mean, even a year ago, I, I, I like it's just every year I try to guess where I'm going to be 12 months from now, and I'm, I'm always wrong. I, I had no idea things would accelerate this quickly. And I'm grateful for it, especially because we're currently in a recession. And every other founder is just trying to figure out how to keep the lights on. And so that's why I'm just super grateful that the Lord is uh, going before us and fighting on our behalf. And just making things like it's crazy because people think that like the 12 million we raise is a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait till you find out what happened the past month. Like this summer when we get to announce a lot of that stuff, I think it's going to blow everyone's minds. And like, I'm just excited for how that's going to uh, rally not only the Malayali community who's invested in Immersed and, and follows our progress, but also um, the church all around the US has been part of our story, or even just people who went to our colleges and our high schools and all of that who've been behind the story of Immersed. I just feel like this is going to be a really awesome win for a lot of people. And so I'm just really excited for what's uh, going to be announced this summer. That's exciting. I can't say too much. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like you always have like, we're going to tell you and then you tell us and then there's (laughs) something else to tell us. And so. Yeah. Well, it's funny because every single time I have something to say, there's always something bigger that's about this coming. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, that makes the last thing not sound that not seem that big. And that's not the goal. It's just the Lord just keeps outdoing himself through immersed. And I'm just, I'm grateful for it. Is there something you would like the listeners to know if they are hesitant themselves about making a bold move? You only got one life to live, dude. And like, what's the point of living a mediocre, boring life? I think the more I think about that, the more it makes me want to really give it my all. And I'm the type of person who, by the time you know I die, I don't want to look back and, and feel like I rested well. I personally want to look back and feel like I have nothing left in the tank and that I you know played this game as well as possible or I gave it my all. And so I just, that's why I think I work sort of work tirelessly. Uh, surround myself with people who really want to be uh, masters of their craft. Like, I just, I love when people really love the fact that they get to live life. Even if you're the type of person who loves watching movies, for example, will be the best movie critic you can be. Just like there's a way in which it can add value. If you're living 
a life that's just to collect a nine to five paycheck for, you know, between the ages of 18 to 65 until you retire. And then you have another maybe 10 years left to actually enjoy your life. Uh, and then, you know, you look back and you're like, crap, I wasted the first 85% of my life. Now I just have the last 15% left. That's personally not a life that I um, would be excited to live. And so I'd rather do that now for the next 50 years if I can, Lord willing. Okay, because you're brown, do you have a curry plant? My wife does, yeah. <laughs> and she's not brown. Curry leaf plant, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she. the main thing that she cooks is Indian food, even though she's not Indian. Uh, my mom's the one who taught her how to cook. Her mom didn't really teach her how to cook. And so uh, she mainly only cooks Indian food. Oh, cool. Well, is there anything that you'd like to share with people that's coming up for you? Or how can they follow you and hear more about Immersed? Yeah, I mean, I think Instagram is the social media platform that I engage with the most. So you can look me up, Renji.Bajoy. There's a lot of fakes out there, so don't follow the fakes. Don't um, follow the fakes. Report them. Yeah, yeah. Go to the one that that actually posts Instagram stories. The other ones don't post stories. Follow me there. You'll see links to Immersed and things like that. Uh, our goal is to um, really live life to the fullest. And uh, we do that in a number of ways, whether it be work or through faith. And so feel free to follow us. And thank you all for listening and joining us on this episode of Being Brown and Bold. We will be back here next week to drop our next episode. Till then, be wise and be bold. <laughs>